Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast, Australia's response to the increasing prevalence of public health threats and emerging infectious diseases has included the government's Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security. In this panel from the 2018 Australasian Aid Conference, a panel of experts discussed the concept of health security and Australia's role in the region. academics, practitioners, um, all of who come very experienced, slightly different experiences, slightly different perspectives, so really looking forward to it. We have Amanda on the line. I'm going to get the panel to introduce themselves briefly and what their engagement in this issue is. Um, but we, we talked about how we wanted to run this and decided we really wanted it as a, as a panel discussion, more a Q&A rather than people standing up and giving their 15-minute presentation. Um, we're going to um, shape the discussion around the three themes and questions we posed in the abstract, for those of you who've read the abstract, but I'll repeat those questions. Um, and then allow about 20 minutes at the end for questions from, uh, from, the, uh, from the group here. Um, uh, health securities... Okay, I'm being instructed. People couldn't hear me. Um, health security, I think that the... I probably don't need to say to any of you in this audience that... Um, uh, First of all, we had SARS, uh, we had MERS, uh, we had Ebola, and more recently Zika. It was a real wake-up call about um, whether countries are prepared um, uh, to anticipate and then to respond. Um, and I think for this region it's particularly relevant because just a few evidence-based to start it with. Um, more than 30 new infectious agents have been detected in the last three decades in Asia and the Pacific. That's more than 30 new infections. And 75% of those were... By the, by the audio system, is that 75% um, of those 30 new infections in this region were zoonotic. And for those of you who aren't health people, that means they go from animals to humans. So very complex issue. Um, but before we start, I'm going to ask each of the panel members just to introduce themselves very briefly and what their engagement in this topic is, starting with Barbara. So good afternoon. Uh, my name's Barbara McPake, and I'm the director of the Nossel Institute for Global Health. And at the Nossel Institute, we are focused on uh, health system strengthening issues, and particularly the health system strengthening issues of the Asia-Pacific region, which is, of course, uh, almost, in, almost uh, universally now a middle-income region that's uh, experiencing rapid transitions of all kinds, demographic, epidemiological, uh, economic. Um, and those transitions are, of course, intimately wound up in the pressures and the disruptions that are driving the threat of emerging uh, infectious diseases, new forms of infectious diseases. So economic transition is, for example, one of the factors that is 
um, changing uh, wetland, forest uh, environments, for example, bringing people into contact with animals in, in new ways, disrupting habitats and so on. And those are the forces that are creating the pressures by which uh, new zoonoses may be appearing in the region. So we're, very, we're generally focused across all those issues, but health security is a, is a very central uh, component of that. And my interest is in the health systems dimensions of that. Uh, what are the uh, potential uh, strategies that operate through health systems to keep the region secure? Thanks, Barbara. Robin Davies? Hi. Probably needs no introduction, actually. I'm, no, I probably do. I'm Robin Davies. I've slowly deduced that I'm the bureaucrat. Um, <laughs> well, I, I am now. Um, so I'm heading the Centre for Health Security in DFAT. It is physically located in, in the DFAT building. We've existed since um, last October when the Minister launched the Health Security Initiative, which I'll say more about later. Um, and longer ago, I was um, Associate Director at the Development Policy Centre from 2013 until uh, I took up this job in September last year. So you straddled bureaucrats and academics? Mm -hmm. Sort of. No, it's never an academic. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Thompson. Uh, uh, Nick Thompson. I'm also from the Nelson Institute, and if Robin's the bureaucrat, I'm probably the activist, because um, I'm probably an up one operational academic at best. But. Uh, I uh, have a joint appointment at the University of Melbourne and Johns Hopkins School of Public Health um, at the Centre for Public Health and Human Rights. And at the University of Melbourne, I run a small program called Law Enforcement and Public Health and an equally small program called Sahili, the Security and Health Executive Leadership Institute. And my main kind of uh, enthusiasm around these types of discussions and these ideas is, is the role of the security sector more broadly uh, in health security. And I'll talk about that as we go on. Thanks, Nick. And on the screen, we have Amanda McClelland, and the, the technology seems to be working, so over to you, Amanda. I guess that leaves me as the operational person, although I'm sitting in New York in a suit uh, today, so I don't feel very operational. Um, but my name's Amanda McClelland. I've spent the last uh, 13 or 14 years with the uh, Australian Red Cross uh, and, and the Red Cross in general working very much around health security at the community level. So for the last uh, 12 to 18 months, really focused on those gaps between health systems and health security and how communities can help fill those gaps, especially around surveillance, early action, and I guess that, that big push post Ebola in terms of communication and community engagement. Um, so that's really where the, the focus of our work has been and, and the push from our side in terms of how we improve health security in general. And I, I also want to acknowledge David Stevens, who's from Red Cross, who's actually put all this panel together and done all the hard work. So thank you, David. <laughs> so let's turn to the first question that we posed in our abstract, which is, should the concept of health security relate only to a narrow set of measures and systems focused on pandemic or ep epidemic containment, or a broader set encompassing public health prevention and curative and health program systems. So I think, Robin, that's your cue to, to perhaps talk a bit about what the government's approach with this new health security initiative is. Yeah. So I'll talk more about the is than the, the ought in, in, that's implied in the question. But um, So when you look at the way health security is framed by particularly international organisations, there are, there are various ways of doing it. Um, there's always the element of risk reduction. I mean, health security is really a species of disaster risk reduction um, in the health sector, whether it's human or animal health. 
Um, but beyond that, you get various adjectives applied to, to the term health security. Um, individual health security, public health security, regional or global. I think the quick way to describe what the Australian Health Security Initiative is about is to pick the adjective public. Um, when, you, when you define health security in global terms, you immediately bring in the sort of cross-border aspect. And if you look at the way um, the Australian initiative is framed, that aspect is there, but it's not essential. So um, the framing essentially talks about avoiding and containing emerging infectious disease threats or re-emerging threats um, that have the capacity to cause harm, social or economic harms, at either a national or a regional or a global scale. So we're talking about population level impacts, population level risks. So that's broadly the framing. Um, but with that framing, and that's quite consistent with the way that um, the global health security agenda that came out of the G7 is framed, it's consistent mostly with what you get from, say, the World Bank or the World Health Organization. Though interestingly, the WHO framing actually emphasizes that cross-border aspect quite strongly. Um, but the framing doesn't get you around various kind of tensions and trade-offs. I don't want to, I won't go through all those, but I thought um, in, in a prior discussion with the panel, I thought it would be good just to flag a few of those kind of tensions for perhaps discussion among us or, or with the audience. Um, the first is really the obvious one that I've just touched on. That, you know, that there's a balance to be found um, between assisting countries to deal with um, disease issues that have really significant national level impacts but don't necessarily threaten uh, countries at, at a regional level. So there's a, a national versus an international tension or balance to be found. A second area, um, already the, the question of um, dealing with zoonoses has been raised like twice in the, in the very short space of time we've been here. Um, it's a huge issue in, in health security. Um, pretty much all scary diseases are coming from exposure to um, wildlife, essentially, whether it's birds or animals. Those are the reservoirs of the, of the viruses or the bacteria or the parasites. Um, so you have to be working both in human health and animal health. But internationally, people who work on animal health tend to come from a trade facilitation background. Um, and internationally, a lot of the development assistance funding tends to be captured by, the, let's say, the human health organisations, whether it's the vertical funds or the WHO, um, which in a lot of contexts makes a kind of poor cousin of organisations like the FAO, um, the, the World Organisation for Animal Health, OIE. So finding ways to really bridge those divides at, at the multilateral level, but even more so at the level of individual partner countries, is um, it's a challenge and there are, there are tensions, again, um, to be found. And the third tension, which I have immediately forgotten, and will immediately consult my notebook on, um, oh, is, okay, I don't need to, is around, I guess, the, the focus on endemic diseases versus emerging diseases, and though I forgot it, it's possibly the most important. Um, and I'd sort of highly commend a speech that was made by the new director of the Global Fund um, at the Prince Markedol Awards Conference recently in Bangkok, just a week or two ago, where he talked about, I guess, the perversity of focusing on the, the high-profile diseases, the Zikas, the MERS, the SARS, 
um, in an environment where the, the so-called traditional mainstream endemic diseases are killing millions of people each year. Um, that's not to say that, that there's an obvious choice there. It's, it's to say you need to think about it and need to look for opportunities through focusing on systems that are there to deal with endemic diseases um, as a way of helping countries to better prepare themselves um, to deal with emerging diseases. Um, so again, there's, a, there's a, a balance to be found between the endemic and the, the emerging. So I, I might stop there. There's just a few topics that I think it's worth touching. Yeah, that's, I mean, thanks, Robin. That could, we could spend all morning discussing just those, those three issues. I, it was interesting to have Penny Wong this morning say it needs to be shaped within national interest, which I don't think anyone would disagree with, but it does national, she did actually then qualify it with values, because does national interest really just mean protecting ourselves, or what about social and economic harm in the region? I think what you've said suggests that, that the focus of the initiative is actually going to be um, more comprehensive and broader than just what's in Australia's national interest. Um, but I'm going to throw it across to you, Barbara, because I think you you might have a slightly broader view, mm. but, uh, but let, let me ask for your view of what it relates to. Yeah, and I think perhaps this does get a bit into the ought rather than is as well, but I think if it's too obvious to all the countries in the region that Australia is framing an initiative that's entirely about Australia's interests, mm. that's not going to go down very well. Um, and I think um, there's really no need for that because actually the interests of everybody in this area are really quite closely aligned. But the tensions, I think, are about ignoring things that maybe countries would perceive as not obviously threats to Australia and trying to press for resource allocations that focus on those things that are versus those things that aren't. As you talked about endemic diseases, but you're still in the space of infectious diseases, where it's clearly one of the major things that is threatening the health of people in our region is non-communicable diseases. And I think for the region as a whole, there's a real tension between um, looking at threat versus current problem, looking at uh, projections of what the major issues are, not just for human health, but for economies, and even for um, stability and uh, security in the broader sense of um, social stability. If we have a world in which every family's uh, older generation, and we're not even talking about you know, very elderly people, but people uh, at the top end of the breadwinning ages, are beginning to suffer from non-communicable conditions that the health system is not responding to, that's a major, a major set of issues. People will be spending their own money out of pocket disproportionately to deal with that. And if the health system is saying, well, we're just really interested in infectious diseases and in protecting, um, protecting other people from your health conditions rather than worrying about your own well-being, then I don't think that's a, a kind of social contract that, that can be bought. Having said that, you know, the threat is a common threat, and I'll go back to the point about um, having interests in common. It's not just Australia that is threatened by... Um, coronaviruses or uh, Ebola-like viruses or any of the other um, kind of uh, specters uh, in, the, in the, the new disease uh, uh, context. Um, countries themselves are very threatened by those things as well. So there's definitely an accommodation, but I think we just need to be 
very careful about seeming to be only interested in our own interests and not uh, equally concerned with the, the well-being of, of the people of the region as a whole. Thanks. So a range of tensions as to, as to what it encompasses. Um, Nick or Amanda, do you want to comment just on what you see? Yeah, yeah just, just quickly before Amanda jumps in. Um, I sort of think that there's, for me, it's you know, the, the original question, you know, where is the security sector in health security? And within that, I think there are sort of three sub-themes. There's the role of the security sector in, in, uh, you know, in disabling health security through conflict, through war, um, through the inability to, to eradicate polio in conflict settings, for example. There's another sub-theme of, of the security sector as vectors. Uh, we talk about you know, militaries in, or police, or, or uh, prison uh, staff, etc., in sort of endemic areas, whether it's malaria or tuberculosis. And then there's the third thing, third sub-theme, which I think is of particular interest, is the potential role of the security sector in health security as a partner and as a collaborative partner uh, in health security with traditional health actors. And I think this is where it gets particularly interesting and particularly broad as well. So if we talk about militaries, police, um, customs, border, military intelligence, public security more generally, the architecture of security, um, particularly in the Asia-Pacific region and particularly in the greater Mekong, is enormous. Um, their influence is enormous. They're pretty much either, either in government or running government in the majority of particularly Southeast Asian countries. So my, my premise is how can we kind of work around that? And the answer is really you can't. So how do we therefore find ways to collaborate with a really broad and big sector that traditionally health doesn't necessarily engage with? That said, we understand the capacities of militaries, particularly US military or Australian military or US military in terms of medical research, in terms of disaster response. Fine, we kind of we get that. But what about the broader security sector, the you know, customs officials on the Thai Cambodian border, um, you know, looking at ducks flying across or walking across, looking at fraudulent medicines coming across. I mean, at some point, there's a need to engage with that architecture, um, which kind of speaks to the recommendations of the, of the international health regulations and also the joint external evaluations of the global health security agenda, which talks about promoting dialogue and open platforms of dialogue between these public security actors and public health. And I think just by having the dialogue we would begin to understand the potential capacities um, of those different agencies and therefore be in a position to, to target our interventions, whether they be a DFAT intervention or a US intervention or a national intervention. Um, but without kind of engaging in the dialogue, I think we're missing, we're missing a significant part of a potential workforce. Thanks. Amanda, do you want to add, add anything at this time? Are you still there? Hello. Amanda? Yeah. All right. But we might just move on at this point and then if you swap. Yeah. But would you want to come and sit here, David? Uh, well, I think we should get it back. Yeah, no. <laughs> 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 OK. Um, so if we move to the second sort of theme, which builds on this is framing what, what are the parameters of health security, um, the second theme or, or question we posed was how should health security investments be 
shaped to strengthen public health systems, given the importance of public health systems for surveillance, timely response and management of infectious diseases more generally, there was a subset about is the private sector likely to make an important contribution? And below that, what's the role of the health security agenda in increasing universal health coverage? Now, I, I, I'm going to put that one to Barbara, but I did want to say, you know, based on, on my experience, um, there is a challenge in that health ministries are often pretty low status in many of the countries we're talking about and their political clout is not very strong. And then if we add to that the need to work collaboratively um, across, you know, with a One Health approach and then take Nick's issue about defence, uh, I guess we've got some challenges. But, yeah. Barbara, let me hand it to you Obviously first. There's a lot, a lot of very big questions yeah, there. Yeah, big questions. Where, where to begin yeah. sort yeah. of a question in my head. Let, let me just start by talking about the issue of the health system in relation to, to health security. I think it's become a bit of a commonplace since the Ebola epidemic to say, oh, the Ebola epidemic showed how much health systems matter. But I think underneath that commonplace, there's a lot of different interpretations of what we're talking about there. So I think what most people are reading by that is Ebola happened and there weren't any lab-based, there weren't any lab systems, there, weren't, there wasn't a public health function uh, that was able to respond to the emergency. I think my point is that the, the lack was actually uh, much, much bigger than just the absence of the ability to immediately respond, which obviously was a major factor, and I don't want to, to underplay that. But at the core is that the relationship between the population and the health system is fundamental in the processes that go on around the emergence of a new disease. So... Going away from Ebola for a moment, um, in the SARS ap epidemic in China, what happened when SARS emerged? The international teams were invited to come in and help the Chinese uh, uh, solve, the, solve the issues. Um, and the immediate thing they asked was, well, where will we find the people uh, who are suffering from this new condition? And the Chinese had to sort of say, well, actually, it's not very clear where you'll find them. You won't find them in hospitals or in primary care facilities or even necessarily in private sector facilities because the people are used to the idea that they just won't get what they need uh, from those systems and that they'll be impoverished in the, in the process of trying. So, for example, there were studies that showed that people with TB <coughs> would try and get a diagnosis to get over the hurdle that would give them access to the free TB services in multiple uh, places where they'd be charged for x-ray after x-ray, where, of course, what you need is a sputum test. Um, and when, when their money had finally run out, they might eventually get the sputum test, which was, which was cheap, which was why they were never getting it, um, or they might uh, never get anything. And people had completely lost faith with the health system. So when they were suffering from something new, they were simply, to a large extent, sitting at home, and there wasn't an easy place uh, for the intervention, the emergency response to find them and, uh, and kick into action. To a certain extent, that was true in, in, in Ebola and in West Africa as well, that people were uh, going to uh, traditional healers, to local quacks, to a very dispersed range of places rather than to the public health system, because there simply wasn't that trust and faith that you've got to, you're ill, you go to a, you go to a health facility and you get some kind of response that isn't going, to, isn't going to impoverish your family. 
So that kind of fundamental of the health system just has to work at at least that most basic level is a precondition for being able to do anything. Um, and so that broad strengthening from the bottom up and being able to offer people the basics of what they need has to be in place before anything's possible. And many people credit that, that SARS experience with the Chinese uh, becoming interested in, in seriously reforming their health system and investing the resources that they have since done to the point that should there be another one, I think the story would be very different in China. You would find people, unfortunately, predominantly at hospitals rather than at the primary care system, but, but you would know where to find them. So that raises, that, that relates to a lot of the other questions that, uh, you know, the, the layers of issues that, that um, Helen has then added to that. One, I think, is this issue of the weakness of uh, ministries of health. I think it's not just that they have a low status, is that though there's a, a vicious circle there, isn't there, between having a low status and, and being weak. Nobody wants to go and work in a place that, that has a low status, so who, who ends up there? Um, I think the collaboration with ministries of agriculture and relatedly with uh, issues of trade and, and economy that emerge from um, new uh, zoonotic outbreaks um, changes that to a certain extent because those are much stronger and more respected ministries. Robin was certainly raising some issues in his opening uh, comments about some of the conflicts between the agendas of those agencies. But again, there clearly is a common agenda once you've got an Ebola or a SARS uh, that, all, that, that everybody needs that problem dealt with quickly. So I think ministries of health are in a position to be, to be strengthened. Um, and I think perhaps some of the other things I said already embed some of the issues of the private sector. It may be um, an important resource for people um, especially where the public system fails them. And in that case, they need to, there needs to be mechanisms, strategies for co-opting them to be part of the solution. And that's always very difficult. So it's another, another set of different agendas reconciling their motivations and incentives with the motivations of the, of, of the rest. And you know, potentially, they're not so motivated by the public good. Uh, you know, they may, be making, they may be making good money out of the museum, and also to just throw that out there. But, you know, this issue of potential conflicts and incentives actually, actually multiplies. So I guess, Barbara, you, from what you're saying, this is where universal health coverage, social insurance, et cetera, have such, has such a key role to play. Well, absolutely. And once we have an Ebola epidemic, it's actually too late then. Well, it's not too late, but then the cost, both in human terms and economically, is huge. I mean... SARS was estimated to have cost globally something like 54 billion to get it under control yeah. again. And I, I haven't seen a, a recent figure about globally about Ebola, but uh, it devastated the health systems um, in those three countries where it was most mm. impacted. So then, Robin, with the One Health approach, how do we translate the rhetoric into action? I mean, it's one of the things you're working on with the Regional Health Initiative. I mean, how do we... What, what's Australia's role, which is, is the question for this panel, what's Australia's role in trying to facilitate this, this broader collaboration? Yeah, and I'll come to that, but just to... Um, I think Barbara's point is really good. It's, it's, it's possible to be way too glib about the relationship between universal health coverage and health security. You, you hear a lot of people saying these are just two sides of the same coin. 
but it depends, depends what you're doing about health security. If, if you're helping countries to occasionally stand up a capacity to detect a, a very rare um, disease and deal with that, that's sort of health security, but it's definitely not the flip side of universal health coverage. Mm. If you're helping them across a broader front um, uh, with, I guess, the more endemic diseases that we talked about and, that, and thereby helping people to start to trust their health systems and you know, you're using those systems, then maybe the, the story starts to be true. On um, One Health, I guess there's a relatively easier part and then you know, a, a really almost intractable part. So at, at the global level, um, Nick talked about the WHO-led joint external evaluation process. Um, which is all about assessing countries' capacity, or their preparedness, essentially, to deal with, um, with epidemics and pandemics. Um, it's WHO-led, but it does have a veneer of One Health about it. It does, it does look at cross-sectoral collaboration. Um, separately, there's a process led by the World Animal Health Organization um, to assess the so-called performance of veterinary services. It's kind of similar, but it's, it's been around longer. It's not as public. Now, the relatively easier part, I'm not saying it's easy, would be bringing those things together so that there are, there are objective, balanced assessments of countries' capacity um, to prevent, detect and respond to outbreaks across both the, the health and, you know, the human and animal health sectors. Um, that's already a big job. But when you come to country level, I, I don't think there's an easy answer. I mean, the, the countries that I'm most familiar with, there is essentially no interaction between health and agriculture ministries. And you, you really have to be, I think, opportunistic um, to, to find points of, of connection. Um, one, one possibility that was raised with me in a recent discussion was around health information systems. Um, there, I won't go into the details, but there is an interesting health information system that's been developed um, in Indonesia with Australian support, um, which is believed to be generalizable to the human health sector and something like that. If, if both sides see value in the system, it can't, that kind of thing can bring them together. Um, but at the moment, the best we can hope for is, I guess, that outbreak response protocols um, at least bring them together and they drill together, as we saw with avian influenza back in the mid-2000s. I think that the point of health information systems, which I want to get to, and I really want, hope we get Amanda back, or maybe David can cope, about how you balance human rights and privacy with, with uh, data systems and tracking, et cetera. But I wanted to ask you, Nick, um, given that law enforcement uh, uh, is in public health, your area, what do you see as the role of law enforcement and regulation playing here? And what do we do in countries where there's a weak system? I mean, I think Dr Tedros said that uh, health security is only as strong as the weakest link. Um, and I think the West African experience is probably a good example. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think... Um just to sort of sort of backtrack to, to that answer, the, the context of health systems more generally and, and the need to strengthen health systems, of course, absolutely, com completely agree with. Where I think it, it kind of gets a bit away from me is that how can we have a, a security of health system or a strong health system in the absence of, of an enabling environment in which that can function? Mm -hmm. um, and the people that are often most in charge of, not most in charge, the people often have direct influence over over an environment where you're trying to access services, et cetera, et cetera, are the people, the, the lawmakers, the law enforcers, the, the natural extension of the state. You know, the visible, the uniform services being the natural visible arm of the state charged with keeping law and order, providing an environment where people can 
access what they need to access. And I think to, to kind of answer the question, we've, there's, a, there's, a, there's two, two kind of points. One, one point is that um, in terms of Australia's role and, and, and donors more in general, there's an unwillingness um, or a hesitancy or a caution to engaging with, with law enforcement particularly, uh, but also militaries, of course, um, because essentially at the end of the day, public health human rights people don't trust them necessarily, often rightly. Um, if you're running the Global Fund, uh, for example, and you're dealing out millions and millions of dollars, there is nowhere within your structure that says you're allowed to give money to police reform. Yet we know from the HIV world, particularly amongst key populations, that we're never going to get to sort of zero cases unless we can kind of arrest the arresting, if you know what I mean. Like if we can halt the arresting, if we can halt the bribery, if we can halt the corruption, if you can halt the diversion of people into criminal justice systems, the only way we could do that is through a direct investment in law enforcement reform. So, so from that perspective, I, th I think if we want to achieve a truly enabling environment for health security, we have, we have to kind of engage in this sort of question around reform of law enforcement. And I think that's, that it's, a tr it's a tricky question. There's no easy answers, but I think we're starting to see the need to at least, to at least do that. Um, I'm not sure if that answers the question a yeah. little bit. No, no, it's an interesting one. And I, I have to say, wearing a previous hat of mine, I think the Global Fund does fund into, was funding into education now because with girls, there's a huge, whether it would fund through into law enforcement, I guess, is, a, yeah, is another I, whole step. Yeah, and I think you'll see, you'll see some, you'll see some funding for sensitization workshops yeah. with police, but I think a sensitize, and this gets to the science mm. of an enabling environment. Funding a sensitisation workshop run by human rights activists for police isn't necessarily going to get the job done with police. Mm. Running a discussion with police around how an engagement on this issue from a health perspective will actually address your indicators of interest, such as mm. crime, such as perceptions of trust in policing, et cetera, et cetera, I think is potentially a, a kind of a clever diplomatic way to go with police. So it's, it's more around how health and what we can learn from public health research around methods and epi um, and cost effectiveness and modelling around how we apply that to some of these other sectors we want to influence. No, I think it's a really important point. I mean, are the two necessarily incompatible? I think what you're saying is it's how you approach it. So, for instance, in Australia with the HIV epidemic, sure. that's exactly what we did working with police. Yep. Uh, you know, so we were able to get in needle syringe exchanges. Totally. It took us a long time to get condoms into prisons, but, you know, it's, it's how you approach it, I think, is what you're saying. Yeah, and, and, and public, I mean, you know, the, the, the mandate of law enforcement is public safety, which is, you know, only one, one word away from public health. Yeah. You know, and they're really quite similar constructs. It's just, and to bring it back to Australia in the context of, of health security, in the context of disaster response and resilience, you speak to police around the country and they will tell you that in the moment of crisis, mm -hmm whole of government will kick in and it will work. Yeah, but you and need I, a crisis to get there. Yeah, and, and then so how do we apply that in, yeah. in, in Western Myanmar, I yeah. think, would be, would be a question yeah. for how we approach health security. So I was going to take further and I was going to ask Amanda, so David... Yes. Well, let's see if she's available. <laughs> <laughs> Amanda, are you there? Yes, I can hear you. Oh, great. Okay. We just, we just can't see you, Amanda, so that's great. That's fantastic. So, well, I might vacate this seat then. Well, why don't you stay I'll here stay just there. in case? <laughs> So, Amanda, have you been able to hear the discussion to date? Uh, you've been dropping in and out, so I have to apologise. I've missed most of it. All right. Okay. So, perhaps if I can just encapsulate it, we're talking about, um, I guess, how you balance um, 
uh, enforcement, regulation, etc., with public health interests, and are they... This is just the last end of the conversation, but where I wanted you to comment on was then how do we balance human rights and privacy, for example, in the need to have robust surveillance data, to have contact tracing? Where does data protection and storage fit in when we're looking at national data sets, et cetera? And I know this is something that you've put a lot of thought into. So would you like to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's, a, it's an interesting dilemma that we obviously saw firsthand during the Ebola crisis. And where we saw it work best is where we were able to negotiate how quarantine and engagement with communities um, occurred. And I think, you know, we saw some very good examples of how communities were able to negotiate how contact tracing and quarantine would happen in their communities. Um, and that, that has to be built on trust before the event occurs. Um, we saw some very bad examples in, in Ebola as well, and unfortunately that led to a number of deaths um, and so this, this engagement prior to epidemics occurring is really important, but also can be adjusted during the crisis with the right engagement structures. So you, when we had a pre-discussion, Amanda, you said that, that operational use of data uh, is not so developed. It's academics who tend to use big data sets. Did you want to elaborate on that? Sorry, can someone repeat a bit closer to the microphone? Oh, sorry. When we had a pre-discussion, you made an interesting point about the fact that the use of data sets and big data is, is quite well developed by academics, but it's not so uh, operational, I think. That's not so developed. Did you want to comment a bit on that? Did you hear that question? Yeah, you asked me about the, the use of big data uh, operationally. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's been an interesting discussion where there's been a lot of focus by a number of groups, in, including the Wellcome Trust and others, on how data sharing should occur. But that, that's been very much focused on how um, academics can get access, especially modelling and, and vaccine research teams can get access to that data quickly. But I think one of the challenges really is how we share that data in real time at uh, operational level, but still... Um, uh, still be aware of data protection issues. And, I mean, the examples that we discussed before the panel was, you know, receiving, you know, between nine and ten spreadsheets every day with patient names, locations and phone numbers just on uh, Excel spreadsheets sh uh, shared through normal email channels was really the only way that we could match, you know, dead body management data with contact tracing and case management data at scale and so more work really needs to be done on how we implement good data protection and data sharing policies at operational level, as well as the focus, which has been very much on, on research um, access. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something we struggle with, and we struggle with it even in Australia, to have data sets and data sets that talk to each other. Um, and it can be done, if you look at polio, the, the micro um, uh, following and, and surveillance was extraordinary, but it was also extraordinarily expensive and very standalone. Um, so it seems to me we've got a long way to go there. I don't know whether Barbara or Robin, you want to comment on that? I mean, I think there's a number of issues in infectious disease always about conflicts between the individual human rights and individual interests with the public interest. And I think this is a a special case of that and we went through a, 
a lot of the debates around that in relation to HIV, and I think these same debates are coming back uh, now. And so we had uh, waves of some countries that wanted to isolate and lock people with HIV up into, into separate spaces. Of course, there's a, a whole history of that kind of thing around leprosy as well. Um, and um, while the issue of data is a little different from that, it's uh, not quite so extreme, I do think we have to have great pause before we share people's names and phone numbers in a willy-nilly way just because of some uh, putative greater public interest in researchers having the opportunity to use the, the data to some ultimate end that may benefit local populations, but which may be a long way down the line. Mm. Yeah, just note that, um, I mean, as, as the polio eradication enterprise sort of begins to wind down, a lot of people are wondering what to do with this infrastructure. Mm. Um, and proposing that it be used for, for example, malaria elimination in other places. Um, and for this region, you know, the, the malaria elimination agenda for the Mekong is front and centre. You know, you've got countries with relatively low rates where elimination is, is a realistic prospect by you know, 2025 or so. So we may face this question. Yeah. Um, how do we support, I guess, very fine-grained data collection systems yeah. in the context of malaria elimination? And we've got to remember that governments own this, this data and are not always willing to either make it public or share it with each other at a regional level. So our, our desire to have uh, bright flashing lights on screens will not always be satisfied. So, mm. Nick, do you want to come on that? Oh, not, 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 not too much other than to say, I'm, and I, you know, the, my disclaimer here is I'm not a uniformed services person at all, actually. I'm a, you know, I really am a public health human rights person. I just got forced <laughs> into this security sector area. Um, yeah, not, not by choice, forced. And, um, you know, the, I think the, 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 the point around data is always an interesting one. In the context of the security sector, the security sector often has different types of data. Um, milit I mean, military research outfits have extraordinary access to extraordinary data. Um, their ability to share that or not share that um, is kind of you know, up to the politics of the day. And I think that's why people get a little upset because um, you know, it does feel like the securitization uh, of, of health or it feels like national interest or national security or national intelligence. Um, so, you know, of course, with Barbara on this and, you know, the greater good for the greater number as long as, as, long as there's a, there is some kind of line in the sand where, where that greater good is, is, not, um, is not a harmful good. I don't think you need to apologise, Nick. I think we've talked about well, the need for greater collaboration. So I think it's. Oh, no, I think yeah, it's. Ex ex I think exactly. It's in, I think it's great that you. Yeah, that but you, I think when you when you start talking about engagement with with militaries and whatever, I think there is a, a real a real sort of tension there, and and yeah. um, so I've felt that acutely as I've gone on this last few years. And there's a you know there's a recurring word which I don't think anybody will surprised at, which is trust. I mean, yeah. trust is actually going to be fundamental to achieve this. And trust doesn't happen overnight. It's actually earned and built, isn't it? So, yeah, we're talking about the long game. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. Yeah. Amanda, did you want to comment on that? No, it's okay. Sorry, the, the conversation's really dropping in and out, so I won't uh, butt in. Okay. David, yes, please. Does that work? You might need to turn it on. Turn it on. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm not really a panellist either, so I'll just quickly, but I just wanted to make one point um, about, uh, well, the data point is, is interesting. So people have raised the example of HIV as uh, uh, 
a foregrounder for, um, for some of the discussion about health security. And I think one of the important things that came out of, of uh, our response in Australia and, and in other countries in the region was the, the involvement of communities. So, for example, with data and HIV or confidential information, it was a community that pointed out, and it was a community that actually um, was uh, uh, subject to um, the, the, the uses of data, so either good or bad. Building trust in health security, I think, is, is essentially uh, about talking with communities as well. And I just wanted to make that point because I might not get the chance again. Mm. Well, <laughs> well, actually, it's a, it's a good segue into, into what essentially is the, th is the third theme or the third question, which was how can communities vulnerable to pandemics or other threats to their health help shape the solutions uh, and what lessons can be drawn from existing intersectoral collaboration and, for example, between law enforcement and public health. And I was going to ask you, Amanda, um, if you can hear, you've had lots of experience working with communities. Um, how do we support communities to be actively involved, but also to acknowledge and support, be acknowledged and supported as key players in the global health security agenda, for instance? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the challenge for us is to find ways to support different types of communities. So I think at the moment, we're, we're quite clear on how we can support rural communities. And that's really in terms of engaging with leadership structures and, and using local solutions that have been there for quite some time and adapting those to the different risks and really engaging them not just in uh, communication and being a receptor of information, but really involving them in, in the prevention, detection and the response. I think the challenge for us is how we engage urban communities and other types of communities, such as vulnerable groups or or other clusters of people. I think it's a real challenge for us as we move forward with the last four or five big epidemics that we, we've suffered, you know, post Ebola, including the yellow fever and Zika, uh, the plague in Madagascar was really how to engage uh, whole communities at, um, at, at that urban level. And I think we don't, we don't have a good solution for that yet. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I think the point that you made and you made in our earlier discussion was that we need to move beyond risk communication to communities? Is it just about telling communities about the risk to actually have them actively engaged and how important their active engagement is? Um, and I think that the point you make about, we've tended to focus on rural communities, and I do want to ask you, Nick, a question about border issues, but I think that increasingly it's the big urban communities that are also huge risk areas. There's a, I mean, there's a massive urbanisation right across the world. And uh, within those urban communities, and particularly within some of those very large slums, access and trust and minority groups, et cetera, are a huge, huge issue, I would think. Do you, do you want to comment further on that, Amanda? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we've been really focused on is social cohesion and how difficult it is to work with communities where that trust between uh, community members or communities and governments broke down. Um, and so we've been working on a, a way to try to collect some of that data before the outbreaks occur so that we can look at improving our response in real time and adapting interventions based on community preferences. And I think there's a lot of secondary data out there about how communities work, languages, traditions, etc., that we don't have access to in real time and so 
think I think there is work to be done there in the preparedness phase about how to better engage with the communities um, and how to uh, adapt our interventions to the different contexts, including those large urban slums. I mean, simple things like a uh, missing maps project where don't have the ability to contact trace in urban slums because we don't have street names or house locations um, and working with a, a group of digital volunteers through the Red Cross to map and, and uh, uh, you know, collate data on urban slums so that when we do have a case or contacts to follow up, we're able to find people in those communities um, and enter those communities in the right way without having to knock on lots of doors, you know, and, and asking lots of people for an individual, which which does break down that trust and, again, is a is a data protection issue. So I think, you know, there's a number of new ways that we're trying to tackle this, and I think the data readiness uh, work and, and the Missing Maps project is one big step in terms of engaging and understanding communities before an outbreak occurs. And I would think there's a big role here for CSOs and NGOs because many of those those big urban slums, for instance, people have had very bad experiences uh, with government services mm. and uh, are not going to be trusting of them. So, you know, CSOs have a huge role to play there. But, Nick, moving then back to the rural areas and border areas, uh, you know, yeah. the communities and the people who manage those borders are often the same, <coughs> the same people. So... Yeah, just as, as as Amanda was talking and just kind of you know transporting myself back to you know places like the Golden Triangle and, and other sort of you know porous formal or informal border crossings um, across Mekong particularly. If you really think about those areas, you know you don't think about you know there's the community health centre just up there on the left, just past border control. You don't really think about that. You think about that's the casino right there, that's the drug trafficking route, that's the money laundering piece. There's the human trafficking work going through there, and they're the people that are kind of facilitating it all. And then your point around the NGOs and the people that kind of know what's happening on those areas as well. So it's, these are really complex uh, tapestries, of course. That's why um, borders you know, are often described as hotspots epidemiologically. I think the question is, what are we trying to, what are we trying to, what is the surveillance? What are we looking for? Um, so how do you prepare, how do you get ahead of epidemics, how do you, what do we know is coming down the pipeline, how do we therefore prepare, whether it's customs or border or your local health worker, um, to understand what they're meant to be looking for. I mean, I think when you look at sophisticated approaches, you know, in, in, in developed countries, whether it was SARS or even when you, you know, when there's a threat of a, of, um, a respiratory illness or a respiratory epidemic, you walk through airports, you know, there's screening, which are often run by customs or border, you know, so Highly, tech, highly technical, easy to use applications are obviously sort of continuing to emerge. How we engage with those sectors to, to act on them is a question. Um, and I certainly don't have all the answers, but I think by understanding that there's a potential there, then we can take the conversation from there. Mm. Can, Barbara and Robin, do you want to comment on that about community, the role, how you actively engage in it. And then also, you know, there's a question about how you bring it to scale, or is it all just community by community? I mean, I think what I'm liking about this conversation is that we're not seeing community as the problem. And I think, especially during the Ebola outbreak, mm, yes. there was a huge amount of, oh, you know, culture, which is often people's word for talking about irrationality. Mm. Um, 
funeral practices and so on. And yet there is a deep rationality in how mm. communities respond to things that may not be apparent to some recent uh, migrants to those communities. Um, so there was, there's some interesting work um, that related to the Ebola outbreak in Uganda in the, in the early 2000s from, that uh, Barry Hewlett, who's quite a well-known American anthropologist, I imagine a number of people in the, in the audience know his work quite well. And he um, did, did some understanding of how the Acholi people in northern Uganda, who were at the centre of the Ebola outbreak, respond to illness. And they have a very rational set of processes of working out what kind of illness they're, they're uh, dealing with and then responding accordingly. So when a few people get sick, they tend to use the traditional uh, medical uh, practitioners in the area and um, they'll do the things that they normally do which uh, often uh, work perfectly well for people and then when they find that those uh, processes are not working and that the disease is becoming more widespread they reclassify it as the kind of disease that needs a different kind of approach and their approach then is to isolate people to warn people of neighboring villages that they shouldn't come near um, to limit the uh, contact between those people and, uh, and the villagers and have only older women, that's interesting, tells you something about the status of older women, uh, be the ones who will come and bring them food and water and so on. But really a set of processes that are very akin to good public health practice in relation. But those are never the stories that you hear. You always hear about the idiots who insist on, uh, you know, washing all the bodies and, after, and, and, and so on. Um, but I think there is, there is a lot of, um, you know, deep-bedded, long-derived uh, long, um, rationality in how communities behave. And if we can tap into that, there's a lot of solutions as well as a lot of, as, as well as the potential for some conflicts. And in terms of the conflict, I mean, one of the things that also came out of the of Barry Hewlett's analysis was the way that people responded to things like bodies being disappeared by uh, European Americans, whatever, uh, you know, to be carefully disposed of and, and often have autopsy translated into, oh, well, they're stealing our bodies and our body parts. Mm. Well, of course, you know, just look at it from their point of view and don't be surprised that your, your behaviour is, is not seen in the way that, that, you, you, that, that you might imagine it would be. So again, it's, it's, I think a lot of things is about just really understanding where people are coming from, recognising that solutions are there, not, not primarily problems, and that proper engagement of the kind that Amanda's been talking about will actually source those solutions and, and not just throw up a barrage of, of problems. Yeah. Robin. Yeah. Yeah, just to pick up on the question about scale, which I think is really interesting, and the voice of God might want to say a bit more about that afterwards. <laughs> um, That's so, you, Amanda. <laughs> so the sort of the standard reflex operationally for a, a donor agency is, okay, we'll fund some NGOs, probably Australian ones, to work with their national counterpart NGOs to do some training in six districts and that will include some training for trainers and they will fan out. You know, clearly that's not going to get you very far. Um, so I think it, it, to do anything effective, you've really got to build relationships with 
nationally networked NGOs. In a vast country like Indonesia, they, those might be um, the, the massive Islamic organisations or certainly the Red Cross um, societies across the, the provinces. So I think you're sort of obliged to create relationships with less comfortable partners um, and it takes a long time to, to build relationships of trust with those massive organisations that don't really have much to do with external funders. I want to open it up for questions, but there are two things, two, two points I want to put to the panel before we open it up. One is that we, we haven't had much comment on the role of the private sector, and the second, which is sort of different but relates and doesn't relate to the private sector, is the role of gender uh, strategies <coughs> in, in health security. I mean, if you look at HIV, for instance, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, infection amongst women and gender is, is a huge issue. So do you want to just make a quick comments on private sector and gender? They're different, I know. But, yeah. Okay, let, let, me, let me pick up on, on, on gender in, in particular. I mean, obviously, everything is gendered. And when we talk about almost anything that we talk about, if we ignore the gender dimensions, we ignore what's going on. Let me just give one uh, health security example. During the avian influenza outbreak in Southeast Asia at the beginning of the, of the 2000s, um, the Vietnamese, in my view, um, very, um, uh, with, with some very advanced thinking, uh, wanted to compensate farmers for declaring sick birds early <coughs> so that they would um, come forward with their sick birds before they, before they had infected others. Um, Poultry industry is a gendered industry, like, like all industries. Um, <coughs> women tend to be uh, the uh, keepers of small flocks of poultry, the household level flocks. The larger the flocks, the more men are likely to be present in the industry. Uh, clearly also there's um, a poverty gradient along the same, along the same axis. So uh, the poorest people have just a few chickens uh, keep them in their house. Uh, wealthier people have larger flocks and very wealthy people have agribusinesses. So guess who was most successful in uh, securing the compensation for declaring sick birds? And, and guess who was, who was least successful? And this has now become quite a big political issue in, in Vietnam that makes it difficult to even talk about the compensation system because it had such a, an inequitable and... Um, gender discriminatory uh, effect, even though obviously it's, it's thinking and, and planning was really ahead of its time. Um, just one example, but really I don't think there's anything you could talk about that doesn't have that kind of uh, gendered and, and, and equity-oriented uh, dimension to it. That's, yeah. Private sector? Well, I think I did say a couple of things about the private sector earlier on. In terms of um, health providers, and if we're talking about the private sector in health provision, one of the um, tensions in the whole um, terrain is that people use the private sector more and more as the public sector fails, to the extent that if the public sector is providing a decent response to people's needs for, need for health care, and it's going to be cheaper because it's subsidized, otherwise, otherwise there's nothing very public about it. And incidentally, the reason there isn't much of a private sector in China is because the public sector is effectively a private sector that is charging people for services and, um, uh, and, and, and therefore 
you know, isn't and, and is and is uh, barely barely subsidised, or at least traditionally, or for, for, for a long time that was the case. Um, so it goes back to the things that I was saying at the beginning about um, a poor quality, poorly trusted public sector is a significant problem for any kind of intervention to to manage um, um, a response to a, to a new epidemic may even be at the roots of the emergence of an epidemic if uh, it has emerged because people have not been identified early and the level of um, the level of disease in the population has got to a, a much higher level than it need have done. So we get the private sector being important in that context, and in that context it therefore uh, becomes very important but very difficult to, to engage because it's dispersed. You don't tend to have you know, just a few large private sector providers. You have lots of small ones in, in most of the countries that I'm talking about in, in that context. Um, you have conflicts of uh, incentives and, and motives. Uh, you have uh, degrees of um, reluctance to data share, reluctance to information share even. Um, but clearly you need to find a solution to those problems because that's where, that's where you're going to find uh, the people who, who, who need the intervention and, and who the public needs the intervention to reach. <clears throat> Rob, can you comment on either of those? Yeah, so one thing we haven't talked much about really today is, I guess, the medical research side of things, which will be the subject of a separate session tomorrow, so I won't labour it. Mm. But um, this is an area where I think there are, you know, you know, there are big questions about what types of products are most relevant for a population. Um, mm. And, you know, particularly with uh, malaria and TB treatments, um, some are specifically... Um, to benefit pregnant women um, or women in general, and so you know, making choices about what products are given priority is is, is partly a gender issue. And likewise, on the private sector side, clearly this is an area where the private sector plays a huge role. Only the private sector really has the, um, I guess, the the clinical research capacity um, to really help the public sector make progress on the development of new vaccines, drugs, diagnostics, and I think that the product development partnership model that we are supporting through the Health Security Initiative um, has proven very successful. Um, it's, it, it's a very interesting model, which we'll, you'll hear more about tomorrow. Mm. But um, So, yeah, just to focus on, I guess, the, the product development dimension where, mm. where gender is particularly important. Thanks. Nick? Uh, uh, very quickly, just in line with, with the kind of the interest that I've been sort of speaking about, very really limited analyses of, of the impact of um, uh, creating more, uh, for example, police, more female police. The limited analyses would indicate that you get better, more rounded police forces that are better able to deliver services and be better community policing partners, which would make them therefore better in response <coughs> to health security. Mm. So a gender perspective from, from the uniformed services. Uh, and a caution around private sector, but again, through the lens I've been looking at, and that would be the privatisation of prisons. And, and the, the provision of health and the provision of health services into prisons through private sector, um, and the do you lose the ability to govern what they would look like, and does that impact on health security? So just a couple of lenses there. Right, good. I'm going to actually now open it up for questions, comments. Yes, there. I'm not clear how about the uh, centre for health security. 
and having the authority to do its work without Australia having a sense of disease control, without, without the research capacity to, to work on the diseases that the, that the, that the health security um, should be concerned about. Uh, I'd like to the comments uh, of the panel on, on uh, the groups who are, it seems to me, rightly advocating as <coughs> the centre of disease control in Australia. Australia being the only OECD country that doesn't have one. I'm easy, I don't have to really take that on. <laughs> but no, you're right, John. I mean, there's, there's, it's a long-standing issue. It's, it's, it's something that's been urged by the AMA again, I think, at the beginning of last year. Um, and the position has been that, that, that we have a distributed state model. So I, I won't go into that, but I'll talk about the centre just briefly. So, so the Centre for Health Security is not intended to have any internal research capacity. Um, you know, we're a, we're a small group. We'll be, thank you. <laughs> we'll be 16 or 17 people uh, at at full strength, and we're really we're managing an investment initiative. Um, you know, we're managing the investment of overseas aid in a range of things. Now, some of those things will involve um, supporting Australian research institutions, and we've spent a lot of time in the first three months getting to know those institutions. Um, so there'll be plenty of research that gets supported through this initiative. None of it will be conducted internally, that's just not the model. Um, CDC is um, a very hard model to replicate even on a, on a scaled down basis. It's hard to imagine any government at the moment being able to, to take on the budget commitment of establishing a CDC, no matter how desirable most people would think that to be. you have the authority to do what you want to do without having that research to you. you mean credibility or authority? I mean, in terms of authority, it's, it's like any other part of the aid program. We have the, you know, we have the authority vested in us by the Australian government. Um, and of course, we need to, to gain our minister's agreement to, to go in certain directions, and we are, we are doing that. But with that authority, we can go to partner governments, we can go to multilateral organisations and, I guess, negotiate around the investment of our resources. It's really no different from anything else in the aid program. Perhaps, I don't know whether there's anybody from the health department here. I mean, whether we should have a CDC or not has been a long debated issue that keeps coming up. I think, John, as a, as a brief statement, that's not to say that we don't have within Australia uh, national surveillance systems, data collection across different diseases, it's dispersed. And as, as you know, it's uh, public health is primarily a state responsibility, but we do have national systems and we have a lot of work that goes on in different centres, Kirby Institute, etc. So I don't think that it's that we're without uh, um, in-house knowledge. It's just it's not it's not concentrated within a within a national CDC. Um, but I, I, no, I think we should not. move. I think we should move on. Can unless I just say that one of the central things that a CDC would have to do, of course, is to be studying new diseases and which are coming along all the time. Mm -hmm. and, and otherwise, we're simply dependent on other countries. That seems an extraordinary situation for a wealthy country like Australia to be in. Thank you. Other questions? Yes. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, 
Joel Nagan from the University of Sydney. Thank you very much for the panel. Very interesting discussion. Um, I guess what struck me about it is um, we talked about health security encompassing health systems and agriculture and law enforcement and animal health and community development and gender and the private sector. And we could certainly add things like environment and water and land use and ecology and so on. At what point does it become unruly and hard to maintain support within government, within the community, for an initiative that starts to then encompass everything. Um, so I just want to comment on that uh, as our definitions expand. Robin, do you want to start? Yeah, well, Since I, you've been grappling with this now. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, in fact, your university is, is hosting something, I think, in a week or two around planetary health, which is precisely that all-encompassing concept. Yeah. So you tell me. But, yeah. but, yeah, there are a lot of, lot of issues to grapple with, and I suppose the temptation is to scuttle to the other end of the spectrum and just focus on, you know, building laboratory capacity and rapid response teams and so forth. And you have to, and that is really tempting, uh, but, but you do have to find, you know, a, a middle ground. But I, I kind of agree. Barbara. Yeah, I mean... I want to really um, make the point that it is far too tempting to go the other way and take a reductionist approach and say, let's just focus on one little bit of the problem. And the fundamental point is that all these issues are systemic, and that's why they cross all these uh, boundaries. And that if you're dealing with a systemic issue, what you need to do is to understand the interrelationships between the components without necessarily think thinking that you can deal with all those in, in, in one fell swoop. And by mapping and understanding the interrelationships between things, focus on what's most important. And we just don't do that. We do all the reductionist, let's do this little bit and that little bit. And yet we know nothing about some really huge issues at the core of some of the big problems that we're doing all those different things around. So for example, in the area of antimicrobial resistance, I understand that we know almost nothing about the use of antibiotics in agriculture. Almost nothing. There are a few uh, estimates of how much antibiotic is going into different countries' agricultural systems that somebody did on the back of the envelope and everybody repeats and says, you know, as if this was somehow the truth of the matter. And we have no systems, apparently, of, of going to the roots of where those antibiotics are coming from, understanding by which roots they're, they're reaching different kinds of animals, uh, understanding anything about uh, the markets in which antibiotics are effectively being traded or why they're being traded, the implications for livelihoods of farmers if they were reduced or increased or, or, or anything. And, that's, and, and therefore we have no idea whether or not antibiotic use in the animal population is the key issue in antimicrobial resistance or not. We, we, we just don't know and nobody seems interested in finding out. Um, but lots of people are interested in you know, finding out all sorts of very uh, detailed things about this germ or worm and how it's working its way through that animal. And you know, so what if we don't know what we can, what we can do about it? So I think, I, I, I think we're complete idiots wandering around this world of understanding interconnectedness saying, oh, it's all too complicated, let's just do the thing over here. Happens everywhere all the time. Very frustrating if you're somebody who, who thinks about the big picture and wants to see things happen that are more uh, logically embedded in that sort of systemic understanding. Nick, you were wanting to say something. Oh, no, Thanks, just, Barbara. That's... Yeah, just, just quickly to add to what's being said, you know, the, the construct that, that the 
Health Security Centre could guarantee not only Australia's but the region's health security with its budget over three, four, five years is kind of perverse anyway, right? So it, it just it simply wouldn't be enough to be able to get across all these things. And I think that's kind of the what you want in, in a health in all systems or a health in all society or, or a global health or a planetary health is that health should be one of those sort of apolitical things that we can engage with the US, with the Cambodians, with the Myanmar, with the WHOs, with the UNODCs, with the World Banks, on kind of on equal terms that we, the collective Australian, will contribute to this part of it, you guys will contribute to that part of it, and together we will find some sort of common mechanism for communication and, and information sharing that will make the world a better and more health secure place. So it kind of, it, by definition, if we, if, by, if we go reductionist is bad, if we, if we can keep the big picture up there, then that will naturally promote you know, what is happening in a globalised world already, which is you know, sharing of information and communication, as it should be. Mm. Thanks. More questions? Yes. Thank you. My name is Yamagata, uh, economist, uh, Japan Society for International Development. I have a question uh, on the uh, uh, comparison uh, between the concepts of uh, health security and universal health coverage. Japan pushed the concept of universal health coverage with some resources. And uh, uh, health coverage in this sense uh, include both health services as well as health insurance. And then uh, uh, I found the uh, difference, at least uh, bioweapon military issue is not uh, included in the concept of universal health coverage. But I want to listen to you. Uh, what did the difference, uh, criticism, comments on universal health coverage in comparison with the concepts of uh, health security? Would like to respond. Well, I mean, let me let me kick off. I think it's a huge question, and again, it's another where do you start one? And I think Robin already talked about this notion that one is the the other side of the coin to the other. If you have universal health coverage, you'll have health security. Obviously, there's a yes and no to that. I mean, clearly, if everybody got excellent health care, uh, a lot of health security issues would be much diminished, but they wouldn't they wouldn't disappear. But everybody having excellent health care is a very long way down the line for a lot of countries in this region, and we have to have a more moderate version of what universal health coverage <coughs> might, might, might cons be constituted as. So um, in a relatively low-income country, a lower-middle-income country, or one of the few low-income countries left, we need to be talking about um, a relatively restricted package of care that's dealing with the most important conditions that people are likely to suffer from and, and really uh, addresses the things that people spend a lot of money on, so protects them from the impoverishment that uh, having health problems often, often results in for families. That still leaves huge holes. And just to give an example of the kind of holes that it leaves, a recent World Bank report on antimicrobial resistance talks about the dangers of universal health coverage for even greater and less controlled use of antibiotics. And so uh, a universal health coverage that doesn't address the use of antibiotics in, in, in its expanded access to healthcare could make that particular problem even worse. Um, and so, you know, I think there are many, many uh, sort of issues like that where, um, you know, they're really not just the other side of the coin and need, need a lot more 
um, sort of separate consideration of, of, of different ones. Yeah, I just add, um, yeah, I think both, both concepts can be variously interpreted and some people will think about coverage almost in the insurance sense. So true universal health coverage would guarantee the robustness of the system in the face of, of, of threats. Other people just think about it in terms of basic service delivery. So it depends which concept you have, whether there's any sort of tension there. The, um, there was an international working group on financing health security a couple of years ago. In fact, Peter Sands led that. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they had a go at creating this concept of universal health security, which, which was meant to be the flip side of universal health coverage. And it didn't take on. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, do you have a comment? No, OK. Mary, you have your hand up. I have something cheerful and positive to say. <laughs> um, that's okay. Because uh, we've talked a lot about tensions, but um, one of the positives, for instance, between One World Health and agriculture and human health, but one of the positives is a lot of our cures for human health come from the animal sector because we share, because we share those diseases. River blindness, onchocerciasis, um, insecticides that we use for our bed nets, they come from pesticides. So I think there's a real opportunity, not just to say we're competing for farms, but it's so much cheaper to adapt a vet product for humans than it is to start from scratch. So that's the first thing. And then in the same positive note, um, what kind of positive note to do with defence? <laughs> I'm interested that we always talk about health security in terms of health systems. That's a common way that public health responds to it. Um, and we talk about detect and prevent and respond, but of course they need tools. You detect with a diagnostic. You prevent with quarantine, but also with vaccines. And the reason we're not talking much about Ebola is because we now have an Ebola vaccine, more than 90% effective. That's why it's not part of the epidemic preparedness initiative anymore. So we need systems, but we need tools as well. And one of the places that quite good research comes from is of course defense. They spend absolute, yeah, insert rude true. word here, yeah. on bioterror, uh, on malaria, things like um, leash, because American soldiers in the Middle East, more of them got leashed than, than got shot. Mm. So there's a real opportunity, I think, to look at can we share our R&D yeah. uh, with yeah. the private sector, with ag, with defence, yeah. and remember that the system is only as good as its tools, and the tools are only as good as the system, and just always, you know, kind of always put them both in, and I'm, that's why I'm so glad the centre has got an R&D focus, which I know surprised some people. Um, but I, I think it's a real positive. So that's my Pollyanna contribution. That's great. No, 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 no. I think we can all do with a, some Pollyanna-ish. So thank you, Mary. That's, that's excellent. Other questions? One up the back there. Then we're going to have to call it a day soon. Yeah. Jackie Mundy, Independent. I'm just interested just to hear a little bit more about how the, uh, the Centre of the Regional Security Initiative is proposing to sort of follow a health systems approach, given what we know that, you know, strong and resilient health systems are the underpinning of health security, plus all the lessons and the evidence that's come through from HIV and other single disease programmes, how... Uh, too much of a focus on a single disease risks undermining and distorting a, the health system. Mm, okay. Um, so, in several parts. So, support for health systems research, which I think many people in this audience are aware of. Um, 
will be um, providing quite substantial support, $16 million over three, three years for Australian institutions to, to conduct health systems research with a focus on the Asia Pacific to help us understand some of the constraints. Um, and then, you know, you, you can break a health system in, into some components. There'll be, you know, a workforce element. Um, there'll be a laboratory element. There'll be a, a surveillance element and so forth. And we'll be, you know, working on all those levels, but first talking to governments over the next two or three months about exactly where they see the gaps, looking at WHO assessments in, in terms of where they see the gaps, and then looking at the Australian end and thinking, okay, where can we actually do more than others to help plug these gaps? So I don't know if that's a health systems approach, but that's that's certainly the approach we're taking. It, it, I guess your point is, is this disease specific? And no, quite deliberately, the focus is I, I would say almost disease ag agnostic. We are, as Barbara said, in the space of infectious diseases, but the question is more, what, what can we effectively do um, to build preparedness? And in many cases, that might be through action on existing diseases. So. Okay, I think we need to... Quick question. Okay, why do, if you don't mind, why don't, why don't you ask after? Because what I'd like to do, I'm not actually going to summarise. What I'm going to do is, is ask each of the panel members uh, to make one or two comments about what are the key messages you wanted to get across today and what do you think is a key step moving forward? So I'm just going to go across the panel. So I'll start with you, Barbara. Okay, so for me, the point um, that I think I was probably most vehement about and that I wanted to make sure it came out of my comments was in response to Joel's question about, is it all too big? I think we do have to understand the systemicness of the issues that we're facing and the interrelatedness. I think we have to avoid reductionism. Um, and I think we have to, in understanding those connectedness, connectednesses, home in on those things that are going to be are going to make the most impact across the networks of things they connect, the hubs in the in the networks, if you like. Thanks. Robin. Yeah, I guess I'll just go back to the, the several balancing acts I mentioned at the beginning. Um, I guess the, the message is that you know, we, we have substantial resources at our disposal um, and a reasonably clear mandate. Um, but you know we know it's going to be very hard to avoid um, some of those traps around the way what we're doing is presented around, I guess, going to the easy end of the spectrum um, in supporting certain types of ep epidemic preparedness. So we're doing our best to, to juggle those um, various balls um, to, to balance as, as best we can so that we have an impact on problems that are besetting governments now while also improving um, their preparedness for the future. Thanks. And I, would it be true to say someone made the point that there's no way Australia can or should provide all the solutions to whatever's needed in the region. And that's, that's not your approach. Your approach, as I understand it, is to, yes, work out where the, where the key difference is, but also to work with countries to work out how you complement each other. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, correct. And we haven't talked about the, the place of um, the other big international actors in this area, mm. but we're putting a lot of effort into figuring out how our resources can be blended with those of the American government, the, the Asian Development Bank, and, and others uh, to amplify impact. Yeah, thanks. Nick? Uh, our key message, pretty sort of obvious one from me, is you know, can, we, can we find a way to engage with the security sector more generally 
in the context of health security. Um, by doing so, we would respond to uh, recommendation 3.1 from the joint external evaluations. Public health and security authorities are linked during a suspected or confirmed biological event. To get to that point, we would have to have trust, we would have to have dialogue. So I would, I would be advocating seriously for national level dialogues with customs, military, police, particularly uh, in the context and obviously with health to try and understand what is the capacities of various actors in various places that we can then work with our partners, the ADBs, the US, et cetera, to work out how we then program in um, and build the capacity of those security sector to build a collective workforce in the context of health security. Thanks. Amanda, are you still there? I am, I'm hanging in. Great, thank you, thank you very much. I know it's extremely frustrating to be at the end of a, not even a picture, but at the end of a, a phone with a huge audience here. Um, the, the question I put to the panel, I don't know whether you heard it, was what was, if you could just summarise, what was the key message or messages you wanted to get across in this discussion as a way forward? Yeah, I mean, the key message for us remains the, the key role the key role of communities and civil society in supporting governments to really achieve health security and not shying away from some of those more difficult contexts where epidemics really pose the most significant risks uh, and where those health systems are the weakest. And I think, you know, the second main point for us is really what Robin was saying was, you know, not just focusing on those emerging infectious disease, but those outbreaks that we're struggling with on a day-to-day -day basis um, that are still really getting the best of us in a lot of locations. Okay, that's great. And thank you very much for persisting with this. And I just wanted to thank all of the panel for a great discussion. And You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.